the great thing about poetry is that it can take us beyond what we've been thought of as the truth or the real, you know, because of the amazing things you do with language in poetry that's not sort of normative syntax, you know, or normative vocabulary or whatever, all that stuff pushes the horizons of what we can imagine as, as being a real thing. So, in, you know, someone's experiences that lies outside the norm, maybe they can express it through poetic language, you know, through poetic language, which is slant and out there and makes space for something new to imagine. Hi, welcome back, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. Happy National Poetry Month. So not only did we have a discussion with librarians and celebrate National Library Week, but with me here is Dr. Susan Holbrook. So Dr. Susan Holbrook has made um, a new edition, or I should say revised, and we're going to get into that, um, a Broadview Press book called How to Read parentheses and write about and the parentheses poetry and I am actually joined not only with you Dr. Holbrook so hi Dr. Holbrook hello hello um but also a guest co-host of mine Kim Coates hi Kim hi Andrew hi Susan uh Dr. Coates so I'll I'll use (laughs) the honorific and then we we can let go (laughs) but um Kim and I know each other from Stony Brook and you're gonna hear, she's gonna approach the book from more of the academic teaching model. And I'm going to let all of you out there know why you don't have to be so nervous about poetry. And I know Dr. Holbrook, that's your mission, so. It is. Yes, yes, welcome. And, you know, maybe just starting with that, why do you think when students, the public, they hear the word poetry and they just clench up? Why is that? You know, I've noticed that um, it's being taught less in the high school. So I get students in first year now that will say they've never studied one in school. Um, So partly it's just not being exposed. And then there's kind of a vicious circle. If people are a bit of afraid of it and they become teachers, then they don't teach it. (laughs) Um, So something's happened there. I also think there's some cliches that are allowed to live if people don't uh, read poetry, like that poetry is all about um, navel gazing, emo, <laughs> fuzzy stuff, um, or that it's intentionally obtuse, you know, that it's trying to trick you. Neither of those are, are right. Um, I mean, I, even me, you know, if I'm at a party and someone says, what do you do? I don't say I'm a poet. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, nice. I've got to go refresh my drink. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll say I'm a teacher first. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I just think uh, we don't see enough of it. We don't realize that those things that we learned when we were kids, uh, those were poems, you know, those beautiful nursery rhymes and some of the books we read, that's that's poetry. So we actually, we do know it. We just think that we don't know it. We think that it belongs to somebody else mm-hmm. in the ivory tower. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to belong to that ivory tower 
right? Being a poetry scholar, which helps, right? Um, To disseminate to the public. But um, what I was so thrilled when I found out about your book um, and that there was going to be a second edition is, do you know that book called Why Poetry by Matthew Zapruder? I don't know that one. Okay, well, I love it because when I did do Intro to Poetry and assigned Mm -hmm. um, that book as a reference, I mean, now I have a second book and this will be my primary one. Not that I don't, won't use why poetry, but um, I know Kim and I were really eager and excited about, you know, this being in its second edition. And maybe Kim, if you want to speak to that. Yeah, sure. Um, so thanks once again, Dr. Holbert, for talking about your book with us. And also thank you, Andrew, for having me on today. Um, yeah, I have my book too. I feel like I, I want to like put it up here oh, now pretty. too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah beautiful. Um, I really enjoyed reading this book. I'll just say right off the bat, like even from the um, the quote at the beginning by Seamus Haney about, um, I'm just going to pull it up now, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, I was always shy about poetry. I didn't know quite what it was. And I think I was right to be shy of it because nobody quite knows what it is. I'm still not sure. I love that you started the book with this um, epigraph, this quote by Seamus Haney, because it's like right away, kind of what you were just speaking to, right away kind of getting rid of that fear of like, you don't need to be afraid of poetry. There's no like right or wrong way and, you know, to analyze things. And I think to an extent, like with any kind of literary analysis, we're always as teachers, we're always kind of like trying to push students to understand that there is no right or wrong. It's really like the um, the working of the analysis, but I think poetry that's like even more to a degree that is at play. So I was very impressed with just the way that you were able to, um, in your introduction, like really just explain some of those basics um, for like a general audience as well. Like, you know, I kind of want to give this book like to my dad who, who likes to read, who would just also enjoy understanding how to analyze poetry a little bit better. Um, but yeah, I so just wanted to say that I, I really did like the book and I, I will get into it in a little bit, but I like the breakdown as well of the chapters and sort of like reading through a poem together. It's almost like holding the reader's hand a little bit through the first analysis and then giving them the opportunity to do some of that analysis on their own. Um, but yeah, I did have a question because this is the second edition of this um, of this how to read and write about poetry book. Could you maybe just tell us some of the um, updates or kind of anything that came about for you while you were working on the second edition that might have been different from the first edition? Okay. First of all, I'm just really happy that you liked that epigraph because uh, I was happy to put that in there too because that's really one of the main points of the book is that nobody knows, nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows what it yeah. is, it's an open question what poetry is. Um, and the very thing that terrifies people is the thing that makes it alive, right? That it's prismatic, that there are all these multiple meanings, that it's indeterminate, that that is the thing that you could be excited about rather than frustrated by. It's like stage fright, you know? You can maybe translate stage fright into excitement if you just like think about it differently <laughs> and same with poetry. So thank you for that. Um, and the second edition, you know, really mostly I just added more poems. 
I, I, I phrased things a little differently here and there, and I corrected some typos that had been in the first one, and I was able to put the the art in a better place that was sort of rushed in the first edition and we were able to now put it in the right place, put that in the right signature. But um, mostly it was an opportunity to add some more poems that I love. So I think it's better now. <laughs> can you tell us one of the poems that you added, if you can think of it off the top of your I head? I think most of the things I added, you'll find at the end of the mini anthologies of each chapter. So a lot of them were okay. contemporary. Um, so I added Find Hope, for example, which is the word search. It just looks like a mm -hmm. word search. It's mm. called Find Hope by Samita Banu. Um, I just taught that one and I was excited because I it's a fairly new it was published in 2020 it's a new poem I've never taught it I just love it mm -hmm. and so I threw it in there and in a way I was discovering it at the same time my students were and um it was just so so much fun to try to find hope <laughs> it's not in there by the way Spoiler yeah alert. okay but that's, one found of other the <laughs> that's one of the poems I was really like um <laughs> engaged with actually yeah. like when I was looking through the book I, I really like like that poem which looks like a crossword puzzle stood out to me and I was I was actively trying to find hope for a few minutes there before I was like is yeah. this here maybe I'll just ask on the podcast so all right there's my answer <laughs> yeah it's so amazing because you're looking for hope it's kind of like a metaphor for reading really you're looking 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 searching as you said and you keep finding like nope nope is in there a few times mm -hmm. so I I you know I had thought of it as like a sort of pessimistic sad poem about uh, the search for hope but my students were like oh but look at there's the word key there's the word <laughs> and they saw it you know they were able to talk about it as something sort of productive that you're really enjoying the journey for looking for hope not necessarily finding mm -hmm. it that's okay um yeah so I agree with you so I was able to throw in some of those wonderful poems that I've come yeah. across lately. Um, yeah, and there's another one in there by Sachiko Murakami. Murakami. Um, she wrote this book of airport poems. And so there's that one with the black lines. That's kind of about walking among <laughs> the stanchions ropes at an airport. Uh, so there's some with some concrete interest as well. Yeah, and you also cover such a um, breadth of historical periods. I mean, of course you have Rossetti, Whitman, who I work on, who I, I love that you did when I heard the learned astronomer. Yeah. That's yeah. my favorite experiential poem of his. Yeah. Um, and I think for the public, if you go into a bookstore and you go to a poetry section in any bookstore, you're going to be faced with anthologies that can amount to a thousand pages, right? And this is a dilemma like why well, I'm glad Kim hopefully will I mean I feel like I should now give this to my parents too because I feel that you've given us not only for students but for the public an access and a way in that doesn't make you fearful that you have to learn about all of poetry's history in every century and like that can be what you find with anthologies for the public is it's not really about interpreting a poem. It's more about just getting as many poets names in your brain as possible. So uh -huh. 
Was that something you were really intentional about as you were crafting this book? That's cool. Um, you know, the book arises out of my teaching a certain course for 20 years. It's called uh, Writing About Literature. So it's a boot camp mm. English student course. Um, and one of the units is poetry. And so after 20 years of doing that, that I, you know, I was ready to put an anthology together of the poems that students most grab onto. So um, because the course is not about a period, like it's not about the Renaissance, it's about how do we talk about writing? How do we write about writing? <laughs> That's what the course is. It's skills-based rather than repertoire-based, which means I got to pick whatever I want. Like I just teach a few of my favorite things in that course you know, stories, poems, to play. Um, so that's why it's like all over the place. It's just the poems that I love or I find that students love, not divided up into period, which means I get to teach. I mean, I mostly teach contemporary lit. So I get to talk about Shakespeare for a little while, which I love, you know, that's fun for me to talk about some things before the 20th century. Um, and they're all sort of, I don't know, I wanna say they're gateway poems in the way that you're talking about that they're approachable somehow but it doesn't mean that they're simple I mean that Whitman poem is not simple none of them are you know dumbed down or whatever they're not simple they're just for various reasons poems that offer a number of ways in they're very inviting poems for for new readers I think and they yield a lot you know if you spend some time with them they all yield a lot they're very alive all of them yeah, and this is why I really love for those, right? Most of you listening haven't looked through the book, but you will after this episode. Um, we're convincing you because I love how you divide it into these poem discussions. And I think like that's such a great way to look at one poem, like you're saying, you know, we'll use, um, you know, Kim brought up the one about hope, but you're trying to find and search for hope but it's a really great way of understanding a poetic term or you know, how the actual art form of poetry is approached. And I, I love how you break that down. It's, you can get through this book, like even if each day you read one of those sections, you're adding so much to your knowledge of poetry. And I love how accessible that is. Yeah, I know, like when you look at a book of literary terms, you might feel, oh, I just wish I understood all these and read them through, but you don't, it's hard to learn them abstractly like that, right? So in those poem discussions, you know, like enjambment, for example, mm. like I tried to find a poem that really shows you what enjambment can do. And then maybe you'll remember what enjambment is and notice it in other poems. Yeah, yeah. And what is enjambment just for all of those? It's such a cool word, enjambment, because it comes yeah. from the French, like jambe, you can hear leg in there, en jambe yeah. So it's like, it's when uh, a phrase sort of runs over from the end of one line onto the beginning of the next. So a lot of poetry does sort of end at the end of the line, but sometimes the meaning goes right over and you have to finish the sentence or the phrase by moving on to the second line. So it's like straddling. Is the French like one leg, one foot on one line, and the next foot steps over into the next line in order to continue the meaning? And there's so many different effects of that, but one of the effects is that when you read the first line, I don't know if my finger's going the right way for you. <laughs> you read this way. <laughs> um, the meaning, the meaning runs one way when you read that line, and that registers for a second momentarily, but the phrase isn't finished, so you go to the next line, and the meaning changes. Mm. So it's one way that you can get double meaning. It's one way you can get really amazing 
double meaning. So in one of the poems, the three Emilies is a good example of that. Um, the speaker, this is written in the 50s by a Canadian, Dorothy Livesey, and it's about Emily Dickinson, Emily Carr, Emily Bronte, and how they didn't have children, they weren't married, and they were able to have these titanic careers, whereas she has, she's married and she has children. How does she, how does she get both? You know, in the 50s, that was especially hard. And there's one line that's just, uh, this kingdom, with two lines, is this kingdom barred to them. But it's this, this kingdom, my family life, barred, B-A-R-R-E-D, end line, <laughs> on to the next, barred to them. So my this family life, the domestic life, it's barred to them. They don't have it. Mm-hmm. But because the enjambment makes a stop after barred, momentarily we see, you know, my domestic kingdom barred. In other words, a prison in some way, right? So enjambment, sorry, I went on about that. Enjambment allows for that. Um double meaning and in a discussion of a poem that can really become clear to a reader more than just reading the definition of what enjambment is in a book of poetic terms. No, I think you actually, I'm so (laughs) glad you spent time with this because I think you've just pitched to Broadview Press the need for a great course. Like this would be like, if with your book, you also had an audio book of like going through that. Cause I'm just, in, I'm enraptured by listening to you. I'm like, oh, wow, that's- We should have a reading group. <laughs> that would be really we fun. And well, and we now- have a book club, you guys. Yeah, and I'm so yeah. glad you you provided the French origin and I'm, it makes so much sense now about straddling. Uh, I never, I mean, I never looked into enjambment that way. So, you know, thank you, Dr. Holbrook. That's why yeah, you're here. <laughs> Yeah, to kind of like um, go off of that, like talking about the teaching side of things and like um, sort of like the classroom spaces that you've been in. Um, I work at a community college, so I teach like a lot of um, intro classes as well. And we actually have a class as well called Writing About Literature. That's uh, one of the classes I teach. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's similar. It has like, you know, I try to put in introductions to different genres basically to sort of like expose students to as as much as you can and um I do include poetry but full disclosure like I am one of those people that feels like I don't know how to teach this (laughs) like we you know like I'm I'm definitely I think I fall into the camp even myself as being like a literary person like professor of literature even me, I'm like, I don't know how to do this. This form out of all the forms like makes me uncomfortable. And um, I do teach it, but I I always kind of feel like I'm not doing this justice. Like, you know, do I focus on the meter and like iambic pentameter and like really get into that side of it? Or do I focus on like um, different themes and really expose students to like like analysis, close reading, that kind of thing. so I kind of wanted to just get your take on like student response. Uh, I was really struck by, there's probably a reason you put it at the end of the introduction, but this Venn diagram, <laughs> which I was like, oh, nice, a picture, <laughs> like tell, <laughs> telling me how to do analysis. <laughs> and um, it was really nice explanation though, that you kind of went into how like, when when bringing analysis to a work of literature, it's it's good to think about your your own interpretation, the author's intention, and the text, like the text itself, and add that kind of like 
circle in the middle of that, those three is really the, the meaning. So my question for you is like, in your experience um, teaching, what do you feel like of those three that you draw out in this Venn diagram, which of those three do you feel like students struggle with the most in your experience? And which do you feel like students are um, have the easiest time with? So um, the author themselves and the text between those three. Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The thing is they conflate author and text and that's the problem. They really think that that's where the secret lies. <laughs> um, and so I try to like just sort of separate those out a little bit. Um, I don't actually in that first year course talk much about the author because I don't want that to happen. Um, so in a way I feel like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I, I feel like I'm failing a bit sometimes because oh, I didn't tell them more about Emily Dickinson, you know, um, but they'll get that in other courses because I do want them to just engage with the text on the page. Um, Cause yeah, they have this sense of authority that they, they hope that to know what the author intended and that I will be the one to tell them what that was. Um, so in, in whatever way I can empower them to feel like they have the agency to, you know, make meaning and contribute, that's what I do. So I noticed this term, because I'm teaching this right now, I've taught it in different ways, but I realized that it's really good to say homework, you know, read chapter eight, and then they come to class and each chapter begins with a poem and then my discussion of that poem, and then a mini anthology of other related poems. And I used to just skip over the whole first poem. It's like, okay, well, you read it. So we don't need to talk about that one. And then I start teaching the other ones. But I realize it helps them because they read it to just do spend a few minutes on that first one because it makes them, I don't know, it makes them more confident for me to ask them questions that they can answer for sure because they've read my analysis, right? So that gets them talking. And then I say, uh, okay, which one do you want to do? Because <laughs> it's the little anthology. There's like seven or eight poems without my commentary for them to read. And I ask them which one, that's just a simple question like that. Like, which one do you want to do? <laughs> that gives them some agency too, some power. And the funny thing is they always choose like the weirdest stuff, the stuff that they seemingly complain about, like the sound poet, the sound poem um, sonnet um, by Paul Dutton. I think my book is under my laptop here. <laughs> so I say, which one of these contemporary sonnets do you want to talk about? And they pick the one I wouldn't have guessed. I thought they would guess something that, you know, makes some clear sense. But they pick the one that starts like, so no, so no, so no, toes, toten, no, so toten, don't know, so, you know, they want to, they want to talk about that one. And partly it's because they want to laugh and shout at me and say, how is this even a poem? You know, they like to have that discussion. But I love that because at least there's some merriment in the classroom right 
And then we can actually start thinking about, wait a minute, this is a sonnet. It's 14 lines. All the letters are from the word sonnet. There's a blazon in there. There's parts of the body being described as is in the traditional sun. There's toes and nose. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's that feeling that we're discovering it together. Even the ones I have thought about for a bit, I just had to go for the ride with them. And, um, yeah, it sounds like, um, Kim, you feel like maybe you're not up to analyzing some of them. And I feel like that about all of them, for sure. And if the students know that that's, that's also empowering for them. Like, really, let's try to figure it out together. Mm -hmm. And um, and we do. We arrive at mm -hmm. some amazing meetings in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so helpful. I I just find so much um, like reluctance from students to, which is probably very like normal for first year students um, to engage with any kind of analysis. It's it's just, I think it's very challenging for, I mean, we're talking about how it's challenging. And then, like you said, some students have never been exposed to poetry. Um, so that's something that I, I feel like sometimes there's, a, there's so much fear. And I think in general, like I'm glad you brought up merriment in the classroom because in general, that's something that I think about a lot, like the affect of, of academia and classroom spaces and how to sort of like, um, make them more enjoyable <laughs> spaces. Mm -hmm. um, so I think any way that we can bring more joy and bring more enthusiasm to our classes can can help break down some of that fear that students might bring. Yeah, and I feel I, in my experience, a lot of it comes from the kind of like the concrete poetry or the sound poetry. Sometimes that's the way in because, you know, they do feel more comfortable with uh, narrative, with short stories and so on. And they're always talking about ideas and I try to just to get them to start thinking about form analysis you know how does it work formally I don't think that happens too much um, at the high school level because they're really trying to get them to just read and get in you know discuss ideas I think that's awesome but an analysis is something else it's like how did this story get put together and why does this happen at this point in the story you know and then poetry demands a lot of that um so yeah, I feel like if it's just a sound poem or a visual poem, they are immediately thrown into that big question. How does this work? How is it put together? Um, how is form making meaning here? Then they can take that skill into the other poems and maybe into narrative as well. Yeah, and especially, I'm always curious, like whether it be, you know, I'm sure to Dr. Holbrook, you teach not just poetry, like you said, you teach writing about literature. So you teach different genres, drama, prose, nonfiction, fiction, um, as does Kim and I have too. I mean, right now I'm teaching a Broadway musical course and I'm loving it because it's not something I write about, even though I'm thinking maybe I'll do something for a popular press, which would be fun. But um, I like that freedom you bring up of journeying and telling the students that, you know, I'm on this journey with you and I don't have the answers. And like, even if it's just a rhetorical move, which a lot of our teaching is a performance, it's helpful to have them breathe a sigh of relief with you. And, you know, 
you talked about the conflation and I find this so fascinating because I think it's something that um, all readers have a temptation to do, especially when it comes to poetry, is that like say Emily Dickinson is Emily Dickinson in Hope is the Thing with Feathers or you know, whatever one of her poems, they just automatically think it's autobiographical, but they don't do that with say, Shakespeare is the Tempest, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm just curious when it comes to genres, why do you think poetry has that identitarian, that conflation with author and the speaker in the poem? Ooh. You know, um, I guess the lyric tradition involves that I voice and, you know, one could blame the confessionalist for like really <laughs> solidifying that. But I feel like talking about the confessionalist is a way to undermine that notion. You know, like if you read Daddy, Sylvia Plath, and that's in the book because that is a poem that the students respond to. So I like to put it in the book. You know, yeah, biography is relevant to an analysis of that poem in a way that it isn't as much in many other poems. So like when you get to the confessionalist, it's really relevant, but the I is still not Sylvia Plath. And one like very practical way you can prove that, you know, is she says, you know, uh, at, at 10 that he, that her father died when she was 10, but he didn't, he died when she was eight, like in real life, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's an example of, you know, a transmutation for the sake of art to make it 10 so that it aligns with 20, the second suicide attempt in 30, the last one, you know? Um, so that, that, that's a little example to show yeah. them you know what, even a confessionalist I is not the author. And then if it's true in that case, then for sure in all the others, you can't necessarily make that. And you always say speaker rather than the author's name. Yeah. But you know, it's understandable because also there's the cliche of teenagers writing poetry about their feelings. <laughs> yeah. And that feels like, and it feels diaristic and it's, it's a very valuable thing, you know? But if it's out there in the world for someone else to read, it becomes something else. Yeah. I mean, I always use the term now autobiographical speaker to explore a persona of a speaker. Like there's, uh, like we all have our own personas in our own spaces. Like yeah. right now we're recording, right? That's a certain persona that's going to be different than if we go to the gym or to the grocery store. And yeah, I love those facets of a speaker and a poem. Maybe also just that burst of creativity you see in poems. I'm, I love confessional poetry. I mean, Sylvia Plath is one of my favorites okay. and Anne Sexton. Yeah. I like both of them a lot. Um, but yeah, once you start to add in biography, cause this actually happens, this happens anytime I feel that you yourself learn more about the biography. It's so tempting. Like I'll start to teach students more about Sylvia Plath and then they've never been reading it through that lens. And then the next poem we'll read of hers, they'll say, oh, she's depressed. This is why. Like, <laughs> I've like almost as if they're a lawyer, like they found it in the evidence <laughs> of the poem, Yeah, which is so interesting. Yeah, and it's right in a way, right? There is a resonance there to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Especially that, you know, how every woman must have been depressed in the fifties, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, as you're as um you're talking about these voices and the narrator or the speaker's voice, I'm thinking a lot about um, another genre of writing, which I swear I won't I won't venture too far into this, but just 
um, because it's the form that I work on and research on, which is auto theory writing, which is kind of like um, autobiographical writing. It's kind of like memoir mixed with theory, but it's similar in the sense that the I narrator is not one and the same with the author. And I think that's um, a really important distinction of, of auto theory as a genre. So I guess I'm just kind of like, just mulling over that idea of um, like the metaphor or the um, transmutation as you called it of like leaving space for like art to emerge as a different um, speaker than the author. That's something that I think about a lot and uh, maybe you could just like speak a little bit to that. <laughs> it's a very abstract question, but just kind of like um, that those two different voices, the, the narrator versus the, the speaker in the poem and like why, why do poets kind of potentially, um, I guess, lean towards that form of expression I know that you probably can't answer that, but maybe you just have something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it comes out of the Renaissance, right? And that when that eye sort of emerges, um, sort of forms were sort of more communal before that. And it's so appealing to, I mean, it's appealing to do, and it's appealing as a reader too, because you do feel like a connection to this persona or this eye. And I think we, I think we are pretty drawn to those. Um, modes or movements where there is a blur. Like I, I wanna acknowledge there is a blur in auto theory, like between self and speaker and in confessionalist writing too. That yes, it's important to make the distinction, but like, let's, let's acknowledge the blur as well. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as a poet, I, I, I have the, that experience of writing something that's really coming out of my life but once it hits the page, yeah, I'm like making all these adjustments and and developing the creation, developing the little machine that is the poem. And by the time I'm done with it, it feels it feels like yeah, blurred with me, but it's not it's not me. And time goes on, and I become somebody else, and it becomes something else. Mm. Too. That was a fuzzy way of answering your question. Yeah, no, it was it was a very fuzzy question. I tend to get very drawn into these like ideas that are really hard to um, answer. So I just know. think a lot about them. <laughs> I know. Uh, and like who we think of ourselves, how we think of ourselves is determined by the language that we soak up all the time, right? And then mm. for us to make language feels like a way to intervene in, in those received models. So it feels like, yeah, like it's definitely, it feels like a very personal investment that's crucial to our you know existence. Um, and at the same time, once the language leaves us, it once more becomes not entirely in sync with us. That's yeah. an even plus. Well, and as like, you know, you and Kim are talking, I'm getting very drawn to, especially because we haven't even touched what the term poet poetry means, like its so. origin. And if I remember, I mean, I'm with you, Dr. Holbrook, so. I'm going to turn to you, but I remember it does have an antiquity, ancient Greek. Does it yeah, have a root in ancient Greek? A build, like something that's made, something that's built. Yeah. Yeah. It's and I'm thinking of Plato's idea. And for the listeners, I'll explain this because it's a jargon term, but mimesis, which is 
like Plato's dialogues really ponder how art is used to imitate reality. And like that really, I feel like that's exactly what Kim and you are getting at with that eye in lyric poetry is a reader of poetry really wants it to be reality in lyric poetry. And maybe that's why they start to mm-hmm. think about the speaker as the author, because they're like, wait, it's real life. And, you know, well, I think why we turn to art is to really experience something that we do think has a fixed meaning or a fixed base in truth. So I know now this is yeah. getting philosophical, but yeah, I just keep thinking of the root of poetry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about poetry is that it can take us beyond what we've been thought of is the truth or the real, mm-hmm. you know, because of the amazing things you do with language in poetry, that's not sort of normative syntax, you know, or normative vocabulary or whatever, all that stuff pushes the horizons of what we can imagine as, as being a real thing. So, and, you know, someone's experiences that lies outside the norm, maybe they can express it through a poetic language, you know, through poetic language, which is slant and out there and makes space for something new to imagine. Yeah. So oh, yeah. that kind of um, brings up a question of like, so obviously we're talking about poetry and I'm glad that you talked about what does the word mean? Because yeah, that's a good thing <laughs> to mention, but um, the reader, we've kind of been like talking about this anyway, but the experience of reading a poem versus writing a poem. Mm. Um, Maybe this is like, again, could be applied to any art, but like, I think a lot of the joy of the form of poetry is reading it. And like all of these various formats we've talked about, the lyric poetry and feeling that connection or uh, the concrete poems and like looking at these almost like pictures and, and just like, getting all this meaning from them it's kind of like this aha moment of wonder you get as a reader um but as a writer like as a poet who's writing these poems um I'm just kind of thinking about that as well and like I think people think of writing in general but probably specifically poetry as a a form that's just like an outpour of emotion like Mm -hmm. it's just like you sit down and like in this burst of like feeling this like perfect sonnet comes out. And I think that, um, again, like I think writing in general kind of gets that reputation, but I'm sure I think poetry in particular. And um, I guess I'm just kind of wondering um, if you could speak from like the craft side of, of writing a poem and just a little bit about like what that process is like from from a poet's side and and maybe just kind of speak about that a little bit. Um, I feel like they're really related pursuits. Like when I'm writing, it's sort of the same feeling that you're describing of the the aha and the discovery. Um, maybe it's the modes I choose to write within, but I it feels like uh, constantly unraveling discoveries of language, um, which is what reading feels like too. I feel like there there's a lot of stuff in language we to find. Um, I work a lot with constraint writing because um, it forces you into corners and you end up saying things that you normally wouldn't say because you have to, because you can't use the letter O or whatever. Mm. Um, So that's one way to sort of force that exploration and discovery. Um, So that's the thing that comes- Could you explain what is constraint writing? 
Yeah, so an example would be um, if you have a title and then every line in your poem has to be just an anagram of that title, that's a constraint. Actually, a sonnet is a constraint. 14 lines, 10 syllables per line, this rhyme scheme. So it's nothing new. But um, since the 60s with that group Ulipo and from uh, those mostly mathematicians and writers in France, they did a whole bunch of like writing experiments. A lot of, a lot of them were con constraints, ways to explore language. Since then, there's been a real flourishing of constraint writing. Um, I'm teaching a creative writing class right now in it actually. So another one would be, you can only use the letter U, you know, in every word or you have to write pangrams, you know, like a sentence where every letter of the alphabet appears. Um, is this that same, is this similar to when the, um, when you're asked to not use the letter E, like write? Yeah. Okay, mm. got it. Yeah. I had that, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting because then you, um, it's Harry Matthews, an American Olympian writer who said, being unable to say what you normally would, you say what you normally wouldn't, which is really revolutionary, right? So it just feels like a game but it's not just a game, right? You, you, you're able, enabled, forced to say something different, say something new, because you couldn't say that thing you were gonna say. You get rid of your boring old intention <laughs> and um, discover something you didn't even realize you knew because you have to, to think of a new word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's what's so wonderful is that you're coming like Kim got us there, which is you, have these blurry boundaries between critic and yourself as a poet and like you are both scholar and artist i mean there could be an argument scholars are artists but <laughs> for this sake you are in both fields and i do think that like when you're describing the process i can tell that you you understand your own process which helps students hear from you when you're actually analyzing poetry because you can provide the perspective. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. Maybe, um, maybe that's my disposition in the classroom. You're making me realize this, is that when we talk about poems, I think that I'm like, I'm really asking, oh, how did, how did they do this? <laughs> how did the author do this? How was this made, you know? Um, and maybe that's a, maybe that is an inviting way yeah. to get I, students to think about the form of yeah. it. Yeah. And when I write creatively, I write poetry just because, especially that epigraph you have about um, from Nicole Brossard, yes. I really relate to that of, and I'll, you know, find it. Um, yes. Let me see. She says, poetry is always unbearable in terms of the tension it creates in it meaning. Yeah. And yeah, that like, I feel when I turn to poetry, it's because I'm trying to solve some dilemma in my life. But like that creative writing, it has to come in the form of a poem. I can't unify it mm -hmm. under a short story or under this other fictive yeah. world. Like I'm not That's interested in doing a fictive world. That's interesting. So it's like poetry is the form that can embrace a dilemma. Mm. I mean, I don't know if it, solves it but it can speak it somehow yeah. right mm -hmm. yeah I feel like we're all learning a lot about <laughs> wow. which is wonderful about ourselves <laughs> yeah. and our process yeah. um yeah. but I do definitely want to get to um I know Kim and I were really interested because you do bring up theory and I'm really happy that you do 
you bring it up, but not in a, like we've talked about, not just listing all the theories and then eyes are glazing over. <laughs> um, but I know Kim and I were really talking a lot about even just how you look at feminism or all different theories. Mm-hmm. Um, and like how you got to that process. Like, how did you know, okay, I do need to insert some theory into this text? Uh, did, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm always all those things. Like I'm always a feminist and, you know, anti-racist and uh, interested in all that theory. So I think it sort of just bleeds through. And, you know, if I'm thinking about the curriculum, they, these students will take a class in critical theory. And so this is just like little, giving them a little taste at the beginning, I think. Um, yeah. I know that you were, I like the last chapter is, it's called feminist poems, but like a lot of the other poems in the book are also <laughs> feminist poems. Yeah, I think that was kind of like what my question was. Um, yeah. What I was kind of thinking, because when I did look through the book, I was, um, as Andrew said earlier, like it's not complete, it's not just strictly chronological the way it's structured. Mm-hmm. Um, I think <laughs> maybe I'm wrong, but oh, right. just, okay, <laughs> yeah, and and so I was kind of interested about um, starting with like you know starting with Shakespeare yeah. sonnets and ending with this the chapter called the feminist poems. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of interested about how that like bookends the work and um, how you how you did choose those feminist poems at the end, whereas I thought. Personally, like a lot of the poems that you included were feminist yeah. poems, you know. I so like <laughs> yeah. I was just kind of curious about the sort of like structuring, structure? I guess, of the, of the book. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, I the first thing I did was just make a big list of all my favorite poems, hmm. and then I started thinking, you know, what would be the right way to organize all these? And then this is like the Barbara Walters moment. <laughs> then I thought, you know. I've been in school all my life and I always did the right thing to get the A. Hmm. And now I'm in my fifties and it's like, screw it. This is my book. I'm going to follow whatever idiosyncratic path I want. You know, if some eccentric old guy wanted to write a book, no one would question. (laughs) So I just thought, you know, okay. A lot of these are contemporary sonnets. I love that. In order for students to understand the contemporary sonnets, we need some Shakespeare, Shakespeare already, of course super interesting. So we start with Shakespeare. Then my favorite intervention in the sonnet is Claude McKay's Harlem Dancer. So I started the next chapter with him. And then I thought, oh, there's so much good stuff in the Harlem Renaissance. And I thought, okay, chapter on the Harlem Renaissance. And then, okay, now I'll do all those other contemporary sonnets. Seriously, it was just like, what poems do I love? And then I just moved from one thing to the next. When I thought about Plath and putting daddy in there, I could have given you a chapter on the confessionalists. I mean, I could totally see that. But then I thought, you know, no one pays attention to what a sonic genius Sylvia Plath is. So I think I'm gonna have a chapter where I feature sound like the sonic. So that's what her poem leads into. And then I also, I also feel like, you know, something that's not in the poetic devices books, like the, those glossaries is, um, how important syntax is in poetry. Like we learned about illusion, alliteration, blah, blah, blah. but really the most important thing to understand about poetic form is how words are 
arranged. <laughs> you know, what, what poets do with syntax. So I thought I better just have a whole chapter about that where I talk about that. That's where Whitman appears, right? Yeah, so it's so important that he has that huge digression in there, um, which you understand if you're thinking about grammar, like that's actually part of what we've got to think about when we read poems. So in other words, it's very idiosyncratic and on my own whim, and I'm just admitting that. <laughs> As it should be, because it's no. your book. <laughs> well, and I also think it now all makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, why we're so drawn to your work is because you're not throwing everything under the kitchen sink together. You're not you're not trying to create an anthology. And I do like anthologies, right? I'm not yeah, trying yeah. to <laughs> throw them away, but I love them. But I think what's so refreshing, I'll say, of mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're showing us a, a model of teaching that comes through your writing. Like, okay, this is how I structure my lessons and this is my process and I just think that's a really freeing concept because it gives all of us agency as readers to realize oh we can create our own engagement with poetry there are no set rules of we have to go in chronology so right. I love that yeah I agree and um I also like I do like how you included so much of the history of the form and um all of those like nuts and bolts of of meter and um like the sort of like index and of terms in the back i i think it's really helpful to have that information because you know it just makes the newer forms have so much more meaning when you can see the like trace the trajectory of how they've progressed oftentimes in i mean in education that's like so much of what we are trying I think to draw attention to is like what happens now isn't just at a, in a vacuum it all had history and and like you said like deconstructing that history is sometimes um very needed and, and I'm glad that you pointed out how some of those sonnets <laughs> do that or interact with the form in that way yeah, yeah. Oh, lovely. well unless well actually because I always do <laughs> end with this because I just feel this all came to a nice maybe spontaneous overflow of emotion as Wordsworth <laughs> would put it um but Dr. Holbrook how can you know people find you maybe um is there something else you're working on right now that you're really excited about the floor is yours oh uh I think you can just google me and then you'll see there's some po bunch of poetry books um, and this one, of course, uh, the latest poetry book is called Ink Earl. It's, I don't know where it is. It's, um, it's a, a copy from Pink Pearl Erasers. Oh, wow. And it's Erasure Poetry, which is like just been an explosion of that lately. So I thought I'll just answer that with um, a whole book of Erasure poems made from bad copy from the Pink Pearl Erasers. So that's like the, the most Very cool. Book. Oh, that is really cool how you did that. <laughs> yeah um and uh yeah the next thing i think i'm actually trying to write sort of memoirish pieces about middle age oh wonderful <laughs> sort of comic uh, autobiographical pieces about that not poetry wonderful so well whenever you want to come back i'll get kim to come back on as a guest co-host this was just so enjoyable um great to meet you yes and i will hold this up especially 
Um, yes. For those who are watching the video, but if you're not <laughs> watching the video on our social media of Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you're going to see Dr. Susan Holbrook's book, So How to Read and Write About Poetry from Broadview Press. They're giving 20% off with our code Ivory Tower. So that's exciting. And it's just been wonderful to hear about your work as a poet, critic, professor of literature and creative writing at the University of Windsor. So many faces of Dr. Susan Holbrook. So thank you so much. And thank yeah, you. Thank Kim, you so much. Too. Yeah. Wish we could have yeah. done it in person down there. <laughs> yes. Next time. Next time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. We all will have to come back and you'll have to be part of one of our open mic poetry events we do with Ivory yes. Tower Boy. And then we'll have to go to a musical together. There we go. Yes, that's right. That's right. You share my love of musicals. Well, <laughs> listeners out there, this is hopefully you're celebrating National Poetry Month with us. And I couldn't think of a better episode. So bye to all who are listening. Welcome. That was such a wonderful episode for National Poetry Month. I'm so happy you joined. I can't wait for you to come back anytime you want this literary guest co-host job. You um, truly just helped inform me. And, you know, Dr. Holbrook had such enlightening things to say about poetry. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And um to all of our listeners, I really want you to let them know where can they follow, you know, Dr. Kim Coates. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks again for having me on. And it has been such a pleasure. This conversation has been wonderful. And yes, I would come back anytime. Um, so I am the editor of a literary magazine called Evocations Review. And um, anyone interested can follow it on Instagram at evocations review um i also have a twitter which is at evocations lit and that's evocations is spelled e-v-o-c-a-t-i-o-n-s oh wonderful so yeah thank you thank you andrew for um shouting that out and of course again it was a great conversation i'm so excited to just like hear what people think of this poetry conversation yeah, well, and I think we definitely convinced some reluctant poetry readers to so. get their hands on this book, because I do. This is such a good foundational book to start with. And then you can start adding in those anthologies. But I think right. this is the beginning of the Yellow Brick Road. <laughs> Absolutely agree. You want to have somewhere you can start. That's so important. Exactly. Well, and thank you to Broadview Press for providing our discount. Again, Ivory Tower is the code, 20% off link to the book in our show notes. Everything Kim said, her um, Instagram and Twitter is in the show notes. Um, and more information about Dr. Susan Holbrook, of course, will be in our show notes. Follow us on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. That's the same as our TikTok. Um, Twitter is at Ivory Boiler Room. And we have a Facebook business page. So a lot of ways to find us. And there's a lot of times during the interview when we're talking about physical things we're holding. So make sure you head to our Patreon to watch the video version. Um, $5 as much as a iced coffee, actually a little cheaper, uh, depends where you are. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, Kim. And, you know, bye to all our listeners out there. 
and can't wait for you to be back in the ivory tower boiler room. All right. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this ivory tower boiler room or true crime in academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an ivory tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the ivory tower boiler room next week. Bye everyone. Bye.